Well, good morning. Such a joy to be with you this morning. We gather as the people of God around the Word of God. Just a couple of things before we continue on. Make sure that you've passed along and filled out the attendance forms that are in your row. They'll be collected at the end of the service. Um, good time to make sure your cell phones are turned off as well. I had a great blessing this week. On Friday, I was able to have three dear friends in our home from our, from our time in Jordan. Two Jordanians and an Egyptian. Spent the afternoon together with them and got to catch up on some news of what's happening back in the Middle East. And they're here as part of a couple of mission conferences in Southern Oregon. And since they couldn't make it that day, they just rerouted and spent some time with me and then we were able to continue on their way yesterday. Just brought back a lot of sweet memories of friends that we've met in other places and to hear what's going on in some of these countries in the Middle East. And uh, this morning I ask you to pray for, for me. I know you always do, but um, this week Carol left to be with her mother for a couple of weeks, and so she is away in Belgium this week, and it's always just a little bit awkward when she's not here. I feel like I'm dancing on two left feet, um, but it's, it's good that she can be there. We get reports every day, and it's good that she has this time with her mother while she can still actively have time with her mother as she is in her declining stages of life. In the ancient world, let's see, I got this turned on. There we go. In the ancient world, the word for actor was actually the word hypocrites. It's where we get the word hypocrite. An actor or a hypocrite was one who would put on a mask and perform different roles in a play or in a story. And so it became to be understood that what was seen on the outside was not necessarily true of what was on the inside. And it's a word that Jesus often used to confront the religious leaders of his day. They were on the outside pretending to be followers of the laws of God. But in their additions to that word and their reinterpretations of that word, they found ways to interpret them so that the outward appearance would at least give the idea that they were following those laws, but not on the inside. Their goal was to have an outward change of attitude and behavior or some type of performance without necessarily bringing about an internal change. And as we move further along in our study in the Gospel according to Matthew, Jesus will use illustrations like whitewashed tombs that look good on the outside but are full of death on the inside or of washing the outside of the cup and ignoring what's on the inside. The outward appearance of moral reform, that is what the Pharisees were emphasizing, was not enough to bring about the righteousness that gained one entrance into the kingdom of heaven. That can happen only by faith in the finished work of Christ, who alone is our righteousness. But the scribes and the Pharisees were trying to impose from the outside a type of moral reform, moral rehabilitation that they hoped would gain the favor of God. Well, when Jesus came, we saw this already going back several chapters as we looked at the Sermon on the Mount. He brought in a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And in fact, he said, unless you have a righteousness that surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. 
And the whole idea is that we would come to the end of ourselves and our efforts to try to follow the law, to follow the customs, to follow the man-made traditions that were being piled one on top of the other and be forced to turn to God and say, have mercy on us. We can't do it. But thankfully, Jesus has come to fulfill all righteousness. For his is a righteousness that is based on the divine and perfect character of God. He's the one sent by God. He's the one that came to fulfill all that God required in the law and the prophets. And so those who come to faith in Christ, as they repent of their sins, as they turn away from their own way of doing things, as they believe, they experience then the inner cleansing that shows up in the outward appearance of a person's life. We call this the new birth, the new birth in the spirit that brings a newness of life that should show itself more and more over time. For in that way, then, as we listen to the words of Christ, that righteousness then is, is put on our account before a holy God. And these disciples then who have heard the word to follow me, follow Jesus, repent, believe in him, have that righteousness imputed to them. And it opens the way to the kingdom of heaven. We've seen many times that Jesus calls people to follow him and we need to recognize that when he calls it is not just an invitation it's a command he's he alone knows the way to righteousness he alone knows the path of the kingdom of heaven and it's a path that bids a man to come and die die to his former way of living so that he might live for the ways of christ but it's a path that requires full devotion loyal commitment and the recognition that one is now the citizen of a new kingdom, even the kingdom of heaven. And the citizenship in that kingdom takes precedence over anything that we may have in our earthly citizenship or in our earthly loyalties. Those loyalties and the requirement of a new birth come into play, loyalties to the kingdom of heaven, and the new birth come into play with the two short passages we're going to look at today as we try to wrap up what we see in Matthew chapter 12. We've already seen in the passages before in Matthew 12 that Jesus has engaged in a lively and important debate with the scribes and the Pharisees. He has healed a man on the Sabbath. He has declared himself to be Lord of the Sabbath. He has been called the chosen servant of the Lord, the spirit-anointed Messiah, fulfilling the prophecy given through Isaiah so long ago. He has healed a man who was born mute and blind and was accused by his opponents for operating under an evil spirit, an evil source. And so Jesus warns them, be careful how you speak about the Spirit of God. Be careful how you speak about his powerful acts. Jesus knows who he is. He's the anointed Messiah. He knows, as he's already said in chapter 12, that he is greater than the temple, greater than David, greater than the Sabbath, greater than the prophets, greater than the kings who have come before him. He knows that he is the focal point, the concentration, the, the fulfillment, the consummation of all of the promises and plans of God that have come before him. And now we're approaching the end of this chapter, and Jesus is going to wrap up these ideas that he has presented over several paragraphs with two further ideas that he's going to elaborate upon. He's going to address the reality of spiritual warfare and the nature of the true family of God. And both will speak to the heart of what was happening in his dialogue with the religious leaders. They both call us to have our lives filled with the true power of God and to see ourselves as members of the true family of God. 
He's going to challenge our earthly allegiances with his call to heavenly allegiances. He's going to call us to be lifelong disciples. And he'll make it clear then that he has a family. And to that family is to be our highest devotion. Well, with that, as an introduction, as a catch-up, and a summary of all that we've done in, in Matthew chapter 12, I know we've done a lot of standing this morning, but I implore you to stand one more time for the reading of God's Word as we read the last few, few verses of this chapter, verses 43 to 50. And the wonderful, truthful, inspired Word of God says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also it will be with this evil generation. And while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Please be seated. And let us pray. Lord, in your presence this morning, we are thankful that you have sent the Lord Jesus as our rock of ages, that we find all of our righteousness and hope and forgiveness and truth in him. And as he speaks to us now, O oh Father, through this chapter that you have given us, would you be our teacher and our guide? Would you give us hearts that hear eyes to see, minds to understand, wills to bend to what you have shown us in your word because we know, Father, that it is your will and your word that is best for us. So be our teacher in these moments as we turn to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Warm well, greeting to those of you joining us online. Thank you for being with us this morning. I pray that already you have turned to Matthew chapter 12 and are studying with us. And to my favorite person in the world, sitting on a couch in, Bra in, Bra in Belgium, bonjour. Our first major point today is the woe of the vacant house. The woe of the vacant house. In the first section of the sermon today, Jesus uses a form of parable to explain the spiritual condition of, quote, this evil generation. Those leaders, those religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees and those that follow him in the first century, among whom Jesus served, but who are in opposition to him. They're failing to recognize the blessings and the privileges that they have, that the Messiah has come to be among them. They see the works, they, see, they hear the words, but because they were not the ones that have sent out Jesus, they think he's under the influence of another power. So Jesus warns them, not to blaspheme the Holy Spirit of God. He warns them to repent and recognize that he is the fulfillment of all for which Israel has been longing and hoping for centuries. And so he's going to use this illustration of a vacant house, which is unclean and restless. 
When the when the unclean spirit has gone, <coughs> excuse me, has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Now there's a lot of imagery here. The unclean spirit clearly refers to a demon, to an evil spirit, an enemy of the Lord, an enemy of God's people. There is, even though we live in a scientific age, even though we live in a so-called rational age, my friends, there is a very real spiritual world. There is a very real spiritual battle that is going on for the heart, the soul, the mind, the will of each one of us and of every person that's coming to the world. And in this case, there's an unclean spirit that was in, inside of a person controlling that person and has come out. It's not particularly clear that this is an exorcism. It, there, there, it could be. It fits the context. But we'll just let it as is. The spirit has come out. And it goes to look for another place to inhabit. Now, in the Old Testament, several times, demonic activity is associated with waterless places. There are places, these waterless places symbolize where the, life is hard, life is difficult, and there seems to be an absence of God's blessing. You don't want to be in the desert, as it were, if you're in a rebellion against God. You recall that Jesus himself began his ministry by spending 40 days in the wilderness as he is reliving, as he is recapitulating the history of Israel, and he is being tempted by demons all throughout that period of time. Where, so he will succeed where Israel had failed. But it's a time where there was demonic activity going on. And so we have this evil spirit that goes out of this person, looks for a place of rest, but doesn't find another person, doesn't find an animal, doesn't find something to go into. So what does he decide to do? The text goes on to say, then I will return to my house from which I came. Now I want you to notice the language that is used here. He refers to the person that he had formerly possessed as my house. Do you see this false claim to ownership that he is asking? Demons, the devil, are created beings. They have no right to inhabit anything anywhere, but they are allowed under the control of God to move around in this creation, and they even claim over that which they did not create, that which they do not sustain, that which they have really ultimately only come to steal and to kill and destroy. But I will return to my house. Now, when we talk about demons, when we talk about the devil, we confess they exist. They are real, real spiritual beings. But that's what they are. They are created beings under the control of Creator God. And they have no right to be anywhere except where God may allow them to be. They can exercise a degree of power for a limited time in a limited area, but they know that their time is short. And when Jesus came, he wanted to make it clear that he was coming to redeem and restore all that had been lost in Adam. And so he will bring about eventually a restored creation in the new heavens and the new earth. He will bring about a restoration of our relationship with God as he, he calls people and commands them and redeems them and sets them free and forgives them of their sins. And he will bring about redemption even among people, all who've been affected by the sin, by sin and by the fall. And so the reason, one of the reasons that Jesus came was to destroy the works of the devil. So in this parable, as it were, there was an evil 
spirit has come out of a man and is looking to go back into him. And that brings us to the next point. Self-reform is not enough. Self-reform is not enough. Our text says, and when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and it enters and dwells there. So the language is clear. We can read what's going on. The evil spirit is left. It's going to look for another place to inhabit. Doesn't find one, returns to the original place. To his surprise, it finds there's been a little bit of a cleanup operation going on, but that home is still unoccupied. It is still empty. So he goes and brings others to join him, and they dwell together. And now this stronghold over the person is larger, it's deeper, it's more influential than it was. It's worse than it was before. So what is the lesson Jesus wants to present here? What is the through the use of this illustration, what is he getting at? So let's think about what's going on in his messianic ministry. What has he been doing? He's been casting out demons. He's been healing people. He's been performing signs and wonders. But it doesn't seem like everyone that was healed repents and believes and comes to Christ. We don't see that where it says that that was an automatic response. So in, throughout the country of Israel, Jesus is performing miracles, casting out demons, setting people free, but not everyone is coming to believe. And the religious leaders themselves, they suspect that Jesus is in fact a charlatan misleading the people of God. So they're not following the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders. In fact, these scribes and Pharisees and religious leaders were calling the people to turn away from the way they were living, but to turn to their way, the scribes and the Pharisees, follow their laws, follow their customs, follow their interpretation of things follow their traditions and practices. And so there had been a form of outward cleaning up of their acts, so to speak. They had taken time to turn away from certain behavior, certain activities. They were practicing a type of self-rehabilitation, a type of self-reform. They were working on controlling their outward behavior so that their prayers would be done in the right way so that their giving to the poor would be done in the right way, so that their practices within the temple or the synagogue would be done in the right way. And they're emptying their lives, so to speak, of some bad things, but they're not filling it with good things. Even today, we understand that it is possible for people to stop certain behaviors. They can stop alcohol and drug addiction. They can stop certain practices. But if they're not in Christ, that ultimately doesn't help them. It makes their contemporary human life a little better, but it still does nothing for them before an eternal God. Self-help is not enough. Just cleaning up our acts, so to speak, is not enough. We need the righteousness that can only come from Christ, that can only come from the new birth, that can only come from being born again, that can only come from having the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. So people can have an outward form of reform. We can see this. People convert to different religions. They conform outwardly. But inwardly, they're still unoccupied because they're not occupied by the Spirit of God. They're not indwelt by the Lord of life who comes and brings the new birth. It's possible for people to break bad habits. It's possible for people to perform deeds that even seem good in our eyes. But unless and until one comes to Christ, he's still lost in his sin. He's still without hope and without God in this world. Self-righteousness is not enough. It's not enough just to empty ourselves of sinful behavior. 
as much as we think we can. We need to be filled with the Spirit of Christ. So we're looking at the context of what's happening here. He's performing these miracles. They're rejecting them. There's a form of cleanup going on, but it's not enough. Many years ago, some of you may even remember it, the daughter of the, tyr the tyrant, Joseph Stalin, defected from the Soviet Union and defected from communism and fled to the United States. And when she arrived in, in New York City at the airport, she was met by a bunch of reporters and she gave her reason. She said this, I found it impossible to exist without God in one's own heart. I came to that conclusion myself without anyone's help or preaching. That was a great change because since that moment, the main dogmas of communism lost their significance for me. But she goes on to say, I've come here to seek the self-expression that has been denied me for so long in Russia. She had a terrible price she had to pay. She had to leave her children. She had to leave everything she knew. She knew she could never go back. She would have a new main motive in her life, but I could find nowhere in the story that she had actually converted to Christ. She had left communism, which was good. She had left the tyranny of that system, which was good, but she lived a terrible life after that of various love relationships one after the other. So it's great to be free from things of this world to a certain degree, but until you're free from sin and death and the power of the devil, you're still in bondage. That's why it was the French philosopher Blaise Pascal who said that there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every one of us. There is a void that we have that only the Spirit of God can fulfill. And all of human life is spent by people trying to fill that void. And it might be through pleasure. It might be through power. It might be through money. It might be through religion. It might be through politics. It might be through a combination of all of those things. And so they strive and they strive and they strive to get the square pegs of this world to fit the round hole of the hole in their heart that only the Spirit of God can fulfill. Only moral reform. But moral reform is not enough. We need regeneration. We need that heart, that God-shaped vacuum filled, and that can only come by the Spirit of God. So we have this person here. The Spirit's gone out. They've kind of cleaned up their act. They want to please the scribes and the Pharisees, but they have not experienced the new birth. So now they're occupied by many more spirits, and now they're in a terrible condition. So they... Spirits enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also it will be, keep in mind the context, for this evil generation. As Jesus tells the story, the spirit has left. It returns to his house, making a claim with seven other demons more powerful than he is. Perhaps this is hyperbolic. Perhaps it's symbolic. The number seven often in the scriptures meaning a sense of completion or fullness. Perhaps this person is now completely under the control of evil influence, completely under the power of evil forces. Now they are worse than they were before. Their heart has been so hardened. They've so turned away again and again to the truth of God. The demons have so taken over that they are going to be lost. And so what's the historical context that Jesus is addressing here? He's talking to the people of Israel. He's talking to the religious leaders. 
He's been performing miracles. He's been setting people free. He's cast out demons. He has forgiven sins. He has shown that he has power over the Sabbath, over sin, over judgment, over life and death itself. Many of the Israelites have experienced healings and exorcisms, but they have not repented and believed by and large. They continue in their practices, in their own religions, in their man-made interpretations. They change their outward appearance, but they're not believing according to the gospel, according to the truth of God's word. Their hardened hearts are not turning to Christ in repentance in the kingdom of heaven. And so this is a warning then to the listeners of Jesus in the first century. He has shown them compassion, mercy, divine power, divine truth, not just to prove his critics wrong, but to show that he is a God of those attributes, mercy and compassion and justice. And he's saying, beware of what's happening in front of you. So I don't think we take this passage to build a theology of demonology. I don't think that's the original intent. I don't think we take this passage to build an ex a theology of exorcism, what we do with demons. It's meant to show how bad it is to not turn to Christ when you have the opportunity. It's meant to show that it's not enough for you to try to clean up your own act. It's meant to show that to whom much is given much is required and a greater judgment will come upon those who have received more light more revelation more truth and who have rejected it so people can reform their habits and morals as one commentator says without touching the heart jesus has been living and working among these people doing this and that and the other thing teaching this and that and the other thing and they continually are turning away and jesus is saying it it's worse to have heard the truth, to have seen the truth, to have experienced the truth, and then reject it. And that is the warning that is hanging over this evil generation. He's saying, do not reject me. But this evil generation wants to continue in its own way of doing things. And they're continuing in what they've been doing for generations. They've been rejecting the prophets one after the other. And now they reject the one who is the head of the prophets, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has already warned us of these kind of things in earlier chapters. But in chapter 12, he warned them that it would be better for Nineveh, better for the Queen of Sheba, than it will be for the people of Israel because they repented, they listened, and now one greater has come and the people are not listening. He warned them in an earlier chapter that Tyre and Sidon and Sodom will be better off at least we'll have a less worse judgment, if you will, because they would have repented had they heard the truth. They would have responded. Instead, this evil generation, which should have been the privileged generation, the blessed generation, they had the fullness of light coming and living among them. They rejected it, beat it, spit in its face, nailed to a cross. And in the rejection and their hardness, it will be bad for them. And it did become bad for them. As we move through the gospel according to Matthew, Jesus will continue to warn them, do not reject me. Go along with my ways or it will be bad. And he warns then, if you don't repent, judgment is going to come upon your city. Judgment is going to come upon your temple. Judgment is going to come upon your way of life. That happened in history. As the people of Israel had their way of living and their systems come to an end in 70 A.D., the warning here, I think, is 
do it God's way. If you hear the word of truth, respond. If you have an opportunity to hear what God is doing, respond. The harder we try to do things without God, the worse it will be for us. We can go through a rehab program. We can go through a a program of rehabilitation, of comfort, of survival, or whatever you might call it. But if it stops there just at trying to have outward behavior that is changed, it's not enough. It must present Christ in all of his fullness because he alone can bring about the new birth through God the Holy Spirit. Reformation without regeneration is fraught with danger. Trying to change from the outside in ultimately does not lead to change. It must be change that comes from the inside out and shows up in behaviors, attitudes, actions, words, deeds. So here's the good news for us today as we consider this passage. If you're in Christ this morning, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. You are now occupied. So if you present yourself as a motel, it says no vacancy on your life. Okay? So what is mentioned here cannot happen to you. You are occupied by the Spirit of God. And he is bringing about now this change and transformation because he's brought about a new heart, a new conscience, a new conviction, a new mind, a new power, a new source of truth, a new family, a new community. So you don't have to live in fear. Right? God has given us not a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-discipline. But if you've been one that wants to lift yourself up by your own bootstraps, if you've been one that wants to bring about your own self-rehabilitation, if you're the one that wants to have some type of self-reform and your pursuits are not ultimately in Christ, they will be in vain. Not to live for Christ and not to be under the control of Christ is ultimately to live a wasted life and to have a very grim future indeed. There is a restlessness, an emptiness, a struggle within each person who does not know Christ. So my plea this morning, my friends, are you in Christ? And more importantly, is Christ in you? Have you come to the place in your spiritual journey where you have recognized can't do it. I know I need to be better because God's law says I need to be better. I know I need to stop doing this and this and this. But you realize you can't do it in your own strength. If today you hear his voice, harden not your heart. Surrender yourself completely to Christ. Say, yes, Lord, your way alone, your path alone, your truth alone. Fill my life with your Holy Spirit. Occupy me and my heart forever. Hold me until the end. Beware of the vacant house. Our second major point today is the true family of God. The true family of God. So we're told why he was still speaking to the people. Behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking him to speak to him. We don't know how long Jesus had been going on teaching here. Matthew likes to give us little summaries of what Jesus has been saying. When we compare them to the parallels in Luke and in Mark, often they have more details. 
But Matthew just gets right to the point. And so we get these little summaries. We're told that he's speaking. And while he is speaking, we're told that his earthly family comes to him. Now, we might just read the words and say, well, they just want to speak with them. But there's more going on than meets the eye. They're bringing an unfounded claim. An unfounded claim. Our text says, Behold, his, mother's and his mother and his brothers sit outside asking you to speak to him. What's interesting is this is the first time that Matthew mentions the brothers of Jesus. They're mentioned in other places and other gospels. But in Matthew, this is the first time that Jesus' earthly family is mentioned after his birth. But they want to speak to him, but what they really want to do is interrupt him. They're saying, hey, this is our brother, or this is our son. They're claiming a right and a privilege because of their earthly and human relationship to Jesus. So what does he say? What do they want to say? We're not told what they want to say, but I'm pretty sure it's not, it's, it's not something along the lines of, son, what time will you be home for dinner? No, this was an attempt on their part to get Jesus to stop what he was doing. In contemporary terms, this was an intervention. The parallel account that we see in Mark chapter 3 tells us and that even his own family was embarrassed by his words and his actions. His ministry is stirring up controversy with the scribes and the Pharisees. We see references like John 7 that says even his own brothers did not believe in him and were not in agreement with him. Frankly said... His family thought that he had lost his marbles. Now, lest you think that that's not true, let's look at Mark 3.21 together. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Up until this time, Jesus has been ministering in Galilee. But no mention is made of his family leaving Nazareth to come and be with him. But it seems that word has reached them of what is happening in Capernaum and in the other regions of Galilee. And they are not happy. And so they are coming to put an end to it. He's bringing shame upon the family. You see, even Jesus experienced the truth that sometimes the greatest opposition to ministry comes from our own family. And that's the point he's going to be making. There are two families. Which one will you follow? And so they're coming and says they want to speak with them because they want to put an end to it, because they want to bring them home, because it's causing pressure on the family. They're not looking so good now socially, politically, religiously with the scribes and the Pharisees. And so what will Jesus' response be to this unfounded claim? Who is my family? But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Now, this is Jesus' way of saying that nobody's going to stop me in what I'm trying to do. He would not let the scribes and the Pharisees question him and sideline him from what he came to do. He would not let the demons who showed opposition sideline him from what he came to do. And he would not let his own flesh and blood, humanly speaking, stop him. Now, just on a side note, it clearly mentions mother and brothers here, and I think we just need to take it at face value. I grew up in a tradition where they taught that Mary somehow remained a perpetual virgin all of her life. But I think the Gospels make it clear that Mary had other children besides Jesus. The word that is used here is clearly brothers, and everywhere else it means brothers. And Matthew mentions brothers again and again and again. In fact, 
apart from, first, apart from the book of Acts, no book mentions the word brother more than the gospel according to Matthew. And in addition, the New Testament has the word for cousin, and it's not used here. So these would be the siblings of Jesus would come with his mother. Now just on a side note here, because it's going to show up or not show up, depending on the English translation of the Bible that you have. Some of you may notice that in the English Standard Version that we use, we do not have verse 47. If you have a King James Bible, you'll have verse 47. Why is that? Well, first of all, don't worry about it. Because the manuscript evidence from early on is divided. The earliest manuscripts don't have it. The later ones do. But, it, but they're basically repeating each other word for word. And so in what we, what we know as biblical scholarship or textual criticism, where we look at how copies were passed on from one generation to the next, and they're hand copied, oftentimes what happens is if words, sentences end with the exact same words, so consecutive sentence, and then the next one ends in the exact same word, sometimes the copyist, as he's copying, might jump over that one sentence. You would do that, and so would I. If I were to put a text on the screen and have you each hand copy it, and then collect the, the copies, we would find some discrepancies. And then we'd be able to look at it, and we could reproduce the original document. So what we believe as evangelicals is that in the original document, God gave his holy word without error. But these things are known as far as in the textual transmission that occasionally things show up, but we know about them. We've known about them for hundreds of years. They're not new things. And in this case, no doctrinal issue is affected. The issue here is the kingdom of heaven. It concerns the gospel. It concerns what is primary. What are the true members of Jesus' family? What is his true family? Puts the kingdom of God ahead of of everyone else and everything else including his own earthly family and so they come and they say your mother and your brothers want to speak to you and so he says well who is my family and turns and says who is my mother who are my brothers now imagine how that would have landed on the ears of the listeners in the first century where the family was considered the pivotal unit and the family wasn't just the nuclear family as we call it today the family would include the parents the children, the cousins, the uncles, the nephews, the nieces, the larger family. But it was also known that a man was to have as his main priority in life the protection and provision of his family. And Jesus, in that context, turns and says, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? What is he doing? Let's go a little deeper. He's dividing people, as he always does, into two camps those who are with him and those who are opposed to him. He's already done that several times in Matthew. In fact, in an earlier chapter, he even said that you cannot be my disciple if you love. And he gives a listing, mother, father, son, daughter, members of my own, your own family. He's making a claim to priorities and a claim to allegiances. He's warning against those who would say, well, I could never leave my family to follow the Lord. I could never leave my kids or my grandkids and go somewhere. 
I can never give up what is safe and known and, and mine. If Jesus Christ has left heaven to live among us for three years, to do all that was necessary to redeem us out of darkness and purchase us with his blood, then we need to at least recognize theoretically that he has the, the right to direct our lives as he chooses. Now there's more to say, so stay with me as we move into the next section, okay? We sing in our hymns, where he leads me, I will go. Do we mean it? We get to our next point, which says, these are my people. And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. As I said in chapter 10, he already made a claim to have the highest allegiance of among all. And so imagine the scene. He's teaching. He's preaching. He gets interrupted. The religious leaders have already come and accused him of operating from an evil source. Now his own family comes and claims that he's off his rocker. And in response to their attempted intervention, he stretches out his hands and he says, but this is my true family. This is my mother and my brothers and my sisters. What is he trying to get at? And I think you know. I think we know. He gives us the answer. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my, my brother and sister and mother. There's a higher kingdom than the kingdom of men that we live with. There's a higher family than the family that we have by flesh and blood. What is the Father's will? The Father's will is that we repent and believe the gospel. The Father's will is that we come to Christ and that we uphold and exalt Christ, that we take up the cross and follow him, that we confess him as Lord of our lives, that we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all these things will be added to us. We need to recognize that in the gospel, with our first family being God and the people he's redeemed in Christ, it may be necessary for us at times to leave our own family to follow in the pathway that he has put before us. Because to do the will of the Father is to conform ourselves to the pattern set by heaven, set by the Father, not by the earthly things around us. Jesus himself said, I've come to do what my Father wills. And he sends us out to do the same. But notice here that even in this invitation, even in this command where Jesus is saying, I must be your highest allegiance. I must be your ultimate devotion. Notice how he opens it up. My brother and sister and mother. In the Judaism of his day, it was only men and boys that could study and be students of the rabbis that could enter into fullness in the, in the synagogue. But notice here, Jesus opens up the gospel call to all, to young and old, to men and women, that he has come to be the redeemer of all who put their faith in him, whatever their age, whatever their gender, whatever their background, whatever their ethnicity. It's not so much a question of where you come from, but who is the Lord of your life? Now, Jesus, for his part, was born into a human family. He lived with a human family. He served with a human family. 
He grew up with his brothers and sisters playing games and sharing meals and, and doing things that kids do and helping around the house. He loves the family. He's the creator of it. It's God's design. He knows it's important. Jesus did not come to abolish the family, but to make clear the, the establishment of true kingdom priorities. He's making it clear that it's not ethnic connections or family loyalties or cultural classes that we might be in. Those things cannot take precedence over the kingdom of heaven. And he'll say more about the family as we move through the gospel according to Matthew, but he came to bring in the kingdom of heaven. And he has come to build his church over which he is the Lord. He comes and commands us to follow him and that therefore then his people become our first family. And that cuts across the cords and the grain of every culture where we want to make the family preeminent. And Jesus says, I am building my church, a new family that will last forever. Jesus did not come to abolish the family, but to establish two priorities. He did not come to praise the family, but to redeem it. And God is praised and most exalted when believers put him first and his family first, even over against their own family. This is a tough word in every generation. That the fir true first family of every believer is the church, the body of believers that Christ has redeemed. And that church then is to be the place where people are embraced, where the lonely are to find community, where the broken can be healed, where the lost can be found. Now, of course, that means that the broken and the lonely and the lost, they also need to recognize their need. They need to confess their sins. They need to repent and believe. They need to come to Jesus. But when they come to Jesus and they want to join his people, they should find the church to be a place where the single, the widowed, the divorced, the orphan, the broken, the super successful professionals can all find a home under God as their father and Christ as their redeemer. And so we see the challenge then of Christ calling us to a high calling be ready to forsake all to follow him. But we know in following him, it's ultimately what's best for us. But as we follow him, then also to be willing to warmly embrace at those that God is sending us in Christ and be ready to receive them. For we'll ultimately find that it's in Christ, ultimately expressed in the gathering of his people, that we find our true identity, our true help, our true community and the love and the nurture that God desires for us because he has not created us to be alone and he has not saved us to be alone, but that we'd be part of his people. The church is the place where the redeemed gather and where those in Christ seek the glory of God and the service of one another and the gifts that they've been given, superseding the individual. You find yourself today, not only in Christ, putting a priority with others who are also in Christ. You know, the human family is a good thing. 
It's a beautiful thing. It's part of God's good design. We've already celebrated this morning the birth of a new child. And that brings great joy to our hearts. We love our kids. We love our grandkids. We love our spouses. We love our families. Our families are important. But at the end of the day, before a holy God, they're not ultimate. We can't have our ultimate allegiance. We need to have a love of God first and a love for his people. And that's not always easy. It may come at a cost. But Jesus says, follow me. Take up your cross. Forsake all others. Let me be first in your life. And we'll find that as Christ is first in our life, he overflows us with so much more. You can't outgive God. And you might think you're actually giving up things and you'll find that you're actually receiving so much more. In my own life, I had to learn the hard lesson of this passage, as many of us have had. The Lord in his grace and mercy saved me out of a family that was religious but not saved. And as I came to know Christ, I realized that I had to follow him. I had to walk in his ways. I had to obey wherever he would want to send me. And in my particular case, he gave me a heart to leave my own country, to go and work among Muslims and Africans and bring the gospel to them. And my family was not pleased. And as a young man, you know, we find our identity with our parents. We find our identity with our families. We find our identity in university education and in the job. And what would I do? Well, I would do what I could only do. Have the tough conversation with my parents. Say, I love you. I would die for you. But I'm leaving you. Because God has sent me to serve in another place. And I can tell you that in all of those times, over the years, the Lord grew our relationship with each other. But it might cause pain if we put Jesus first among everything else. But let's consider one final thought. Jesus has said, this is my mother, this is my brother, this is my sister. But consider this final thought. Jesus is our elder brother. According to Hebrews chapter 2, he's our elder brother. Of course, he's our king, our prophet, our priest, our Lord. But he has, waved, he has paved the path before us. And it clearly says that he is not ashamed to call us his brothers. That he is not ashamed to so identify with us as his family, then we do well not to be ashamed of him and being part of his family as well. And so we've come to the end of Matthew 12. The religious leaders have seen and they've heard the one who is greater than the temple and the Sabbath, greater than David and Solomon, greater than Jonah and the prophets, and yet they're still going to kill him. And their judgment will be great indeed. My friends, far better it is to be a member of the family of God with whom we will spend eternity and the joy that we have of serving even now. Well, that opposition that Jesus is experiencing even from his own family, just as he's experienced it from the scribes and the Pharisees, prepares us now as we enter into a new section now in Matthew, beginning in chapter 13, and he's going to give a bunch of parables that talks about what is the kingdom of heaven. And Lord willing, by his grace, we'll start that chapter next week. But until then, what are some lessons we can take from today's sermon? Because we know that outward moral reform is not enough, we depend on the Spirit to bring about the fruit of the new birth in our lives. 
are people of the Spirit, born of the Spirit, washed in His blood, growing in the power of the Spirit, walking according to the truth of the Spirit. Because we are now occupied by the Spirit, we will not fear to serve the Lord with joyful obedience. What have we to fear if the Spirit of God dwells within us and we are His children? Thirdly, because even Jesus stood against his human family at times, if the Lord calls us to it, we will stand with him as we walk with him in this life. And because the church is the first family of Christ, we will prioritize growing with and serving our spiritual families. I know. This is a challenging lesson. I think it's going to stir some conversations around the dinner table. Keep in mind that we take the whole counsel of God. So different passages, we take them one after the other with each passage with an emphasis. And it all fits together. But over it all, Christ is Lord. Let us pray. Father, we are mindful this morning of how much we need you and your spirit and the truth of your word. We're mindful this morning that we, as we are citizens of a particular culture, that we need to have our awareness raised of seeing things from the culture of the kingdom of heaven. And that's hard. And so we need your indwelling Holy Spirit and the truth of your word to continue to teach and to mold and to frame us. But Father, we also recognize that with the the brief life that you have given each of us, we ultimately want it to matter for now and for eternity. And so we pray that you would continue to build in us the desire to always seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. And then let the overflow of our relationship with you move us in how we will use our time and our talents and our treasures. Father, with this one life that you have given us, we want to serve you well, serve the people that you have redeemed, and with that partnership, continue to reach out to those around us that they too might come and join us. For we know that ultimately Jesus is the only pathway to life. So guide us continually on that path, step by step, day by day, even in this next week, that we would live for you, that we commit ourselves into your care. In Jesus' name, amen.